0: The Global Story, with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more.
1: Hello and welcome to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. I'm Roger Hearing, and in this edition, revenues up 265%. The surge of the microprocessor maker NVIDIA not only propelled the company into the front rank of US tech, it also caused a rise in markets all around the world. So, what's going on? And the oldest US stock index, the Dow Jones, gets an upstart new entrant, Amazon. Plus, Google's AI bot gets a swift rethink after it suggests the US founding fathers might have looked black and Asian. The US college graduates who end up in non-graduate jobs, did they waste their money? And in the next few hours, the US should land on the moon once again, the first time in 50 years. And the first one by a private company. And remember, you can email us at any time on world.business at bbc.co.uk. But let's start with what's been going on on the stock markets. Because there's one name on the lips of investors as this week comes to an end. NVIDIA. After an extraordinary set of earnings results, revenues surging 265% in the three months to 28th of January, compared to a year earlier, the chipmaker's stock added $250 billion in stock market value, on track for Wall Street's largest one-day gain in history – And there was a global impact, a worldwide wave of record highs in equity markets, including the first new peak for Japan's Nikkei since 1989. Well, let's pick up the threads of this with someone who knows, Kerry Leahy, an economist from Columbia University, a familiar figure on this program. Kerry, welcome back. Um, Well, what's been going on? What are we to make of it?
2: Well, this is one of those days where uh, NVIDIA delivered on all the hype that's been going on related to AI. I think it's useful for our listeners to realize that in the gold rush in California uh, in the 1840s, the people who really made money were not the gold panners, but the people that made the tools for the people going after the gold. And this is a perfect example of that because NVIDIA is not making AI a software. They're making chips that that allow AI to do its wonders, and the market just loves that because this is a company that time and time again has found itself in a sweet spot, whether it be uh, AI or uh, 20 years ago it was with and still is in the game theory. So this is a company that produces chips that are extremely uh, profitable, and it's at unbelievable scale, and that rarely happens once And for this company, it's happened twice.
1: It is pretty extraordinary. And I mean, and the fact that global markets have jumped so much on this seems unusual too. even the Nikkei, which uh, one wouldn't perhaps have expected. What's going on there?
2: Well, everyone is getting on board with this because uh, you have a situation where the words transformative may actually have. Uh, some meaning. And you could look at a seriously uh, logical reason that overall productivity in in uh, advanced economies could do e- extremely well off all this. So there may be something going on there. And then finally, uh, history has told us that it takes a while to absorb technology. So the Changes that are, are going on in 2024 may still help the economy 20 years from now in terms of its ability to produce goods at
1: lower costs. And in terms of NVIDIA's uh, advance in all this, I mean, it's been pretty stunning. It, does it now sit there alongside the, 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 the behemoths of, uh, of tech, uh, alongside Google, alongside Meta? Is it at that sort of scale it's moving towards now?
2: Well, it is because it is—it's producing the chips, so it's—it's it's riding the back of better-known names. So you have to put it up there. The fact that it—it it got a gain of 200 billion dollars in, in—in value today is just extraordinary. And given the narrow gains in the marketplace, uh, even the average American has their exposure hmm. in their pension or 401k is benefiting from this. So it's really an extraordinary set of spillovers—not just productivity, but uh, people's uh. Uh, investment portfolios.
1: Well, we're going to sort of think about what's to come on this. I mean, let's just hear from the man at the center of it, the co-founder, president and CEO of NVIDIA, Jensen Huang. Now, he had reason to be pleased, and he was speaking to investors after these results came out, and he set out some of his vision for the industry.
2: Fundamentally, the conditions are excellent for continued growth. We're at the beginning of two industry-wide transitions. The first one is a transition from general to accelerated computing. And so you have to accelerate everything. That speed is so incredible that we enabled a second
1: industry-wide transition called generative AI. And that was Jensen Huang, NVIDIA's uh, co-founder, president and CEO. So, Kerry, as a sort of final question, is he right? Is this a moment of transition, a, a, a an inflection point, if you like, in the industry?
2: Well, I've been very skeptical, but I have to say that what has been going on tells me that with all the sizzle there's, is quite a bit of stake and there is some stake in making those chips. So while I hate to use the word because I'm a boring economist, uh, transformative, you are certainly, even if only 25% of the hype is actually achievable, it will be a very uh, meaningful improvement uh, uh, in efficiency. And I think hopefully people's uh, lives and standard of living.
1: Uh, Do we we think that NVIDIA is going to expand further? Could we see announcements about further projects, this kind of thing, do you think?
2: Oh, absolutely. As as, uh, some of our listeners may know, they're very careful about not going past one quarter ahead. So the answer is they had some stunning numbers three and six months ago, and then they delivered on it. Uh, And so I guess the answer is just there, is that no one really knows the scope of what the demand will be for their their chips, given where this is taking and how, in many cases, it's only been a slow adoption of AI, even though everybody acts like everybody's getting on board. A lot of people haven't yet.
1: Kerry, thanks so much for being with us. Kerry Leahy the economist from Columbia University on the extraordinary rise of NVIDIA. And, uh, well, speaking of indexes and their effect, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is one of the oldest and most venerable of the U.S. stock indexes. In fact, it lists only 30 of the most prominent companies. But even so, it is a bit strange that Amazon, the behemoth of modern commerce, hasn't been on the Dow until now because it is set to debut on the Dow before markets close next Monday. And someone has to be booted out, of course, in comparison to that. There can only be 30. And that is Walgreens, the healthcare retailer in the US. Well, Lily Jamali from the programme Marketplace Tech in the US told me about the significance of all this.
3: The Dow Jones Industrial Average is closely followed by retail investors, your mom-and-pop investors, if you will. And it's a basket of 30 stocks. As you know, it's one barometer of how things are looking in the stock market. We talk about it a lot in the media. So is this going to mean a sudden pop in Amazon stock come Monday when you know the ticker is added to the Dow? Not necessarily, but being included on it does come with a certain level of cachet. And what you will probably see is exposure that retail investors have to this stock will increase because of this change. It's going to rank 17th by weight on the index. Meanwhile, Walmart, Amazon's longtime retail rival, which never did quite catch up to it on the e-commerce front, Walmart currently holds that spot. It is being pushed lower in rank, but will remain on the Dow. So think of this as a sign of the times. Big tech is now a bigger player on this index that was created way back in the late 1800s. And Amazon's going to be joining Apple and Microsoft, big tech stocks that are like it, part of what's known as the Magnificent Seven. So now three of those seven will be included on the Dow.
1: But one that won't anymore, of course, is Walgreens. I mean, just explain for our audience what Walgreens, Z's and the significance of that
3: yes Walgreens boots Alliance the famous pharmacy chain that has a presence on both sides of the pond um, you know this is a company that was first brought on to the Dow in 2018 it displaced General Electric which had quite a run 111 years uh, was included in the average for about a century. So that company, Walgreens Boots Alliance, their performance has flagged a little bit. They slashed their dividend that they pay to shareholders by almost a half. The thinking is they want to invest more money back into their business. And its share price has been under pressure. You know, the Dow is run by this somewhat secretive committee that is looking for What represents the U.S. economy best? It's a little bit of a mysterious process, but what they are looking for is a company that has growth, that has a lot of interest from investors, that both of those things figure in. And uh, the thinking seems to have been that Walgreens Boots Alliance wasn't presenting all that well on those fronts.
1: And interesting, too, that Amazon is pushing itself into that healthcare space, which Walgreens kind of represented.
3: That's so true. You know, it's funny because you can have a whole conversation these days about Amazon stock performance and not even talk about e-commerce or, uh, you know, back a couple years ago, the big thing with them was Amazon Web Services, the cloud computing business that uh, has really been a huge profit center for Amazon. But you're absolutely right. You know, these days we're hearing a lot more about Amazon and its foray into healthcare. That's been a story of ups and downs even for the company with a lot of cash in its coffers. A couple years ago, they teamed up with Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, this big conglomerate based in Omaha, Nebraska, as well as JP Morgan Chase on a huge healthcare venture that ultimately went nowhere and was abandoned not too long ago. More recently, Amazon acquired One Medical. This is a membership-based healthcare provider with brick-and-mortar offices in several markets here in the U.S. Now, memberships, there is something that Amazon knows a thing or two about. Its prime program is huge, and it's now offering members discounted access to One Medical's services, including virtual care, which obviously got really big during the pandemic. So it has that. It also has Amazon Pharmacy, but we should mention it. It recently announced layoffs at those units. That could be a sign that things aren't going so well. It could also mean maybe they're just shifting focus and trying to cut costs. But in general, healthcare is A tricky business. You run into a lot of privacy issues. And let's be honest, the stakes are higher in terms of the quality of service more than it might be with something like e-commerce. But it's pretty clear Amazon sees a lot of growth potential in this sector and it wants to keep trying different approaches until it finds the right one.
1: Lily Jamali from the program Place Marketplace Tech. You're with World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Now, Google is racing to fix its new AI-powered tool for creating pictures after claims it was over-correcting against the risk of being racist. Users of the Gemini generative AI chatbot claimed that the app generated images showing a range of ethnicities and genders, even when doing so was historically inaccurate. Several examples were posted to social media, including prompts to create generate images of certain historical figures, such as the US founding fathers, and they returned images depicting women and people of color. Well, is this the kind of thing that shows the limits of AI or perhaps the ways in which the tech can, in fact, be manipulated? Joining me now is Rob Letheran, who spent six years at Meta and Google working on safety and privacy. He's now the founder of Trust2.ai, and he joins us now. Rob, thanks for being with us. I mean, this is quite embarrassing at one level because it just simply isn't working as it should.
4: Uh, Yeah, I think that's right. You know, while I'm I'm happy that there are some adjustments to what we saw when some of these image tools first came out, you, you'd see, you know, the answers to generic queries like show me a software engineer would invariably be a white man and so I think a lot has gone into trying to correct for that and show a more diverse set of outputs but in some cases it seems that that's, you know, backfired somewhat.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, you know, I suppose it might just assume, if you mentioned a software engineer in the past, it might have assumed it was a white man. I mean, that that, that was kind of built into the system before, wasn't it?
4: Yeah, a lot, a lot of these systems, uh, the training data, uh, you know, reflect some of the biases we have in society, and in some cases the biases and, and and imperfections in how the data is gathered and where it's coming from if it's, you know, training on sources like, internet uh comments and things like that so as we know some of those those things can be uh you know less than perfect so I, I do think there's a there's a real discussion to be had here about you know what are the standards and and the ways in which we we we, we want to think about these things but uh, th- there's definitely a lot to unpack in uh, seeing something like this go on
1: yeah because in the end i suppose if you go the other way as they have it's going to make people I'd laugh at it, I suppose, but also just 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 not get with the whole idea that it can work in the right way in a neutral way.
4: Yes, yes, I think that, I think that's correct. So so there's a balance between you know historical accuracy uh, and representativeness. Um, and, and again, I, I do think that some of the reaction to this is a bit overblown. I mean, these are new tools. They're changing daily. Uh, you know, so and and, I, and and some of the companies involved here have gone to great lengths to position these as experiments. You are not even beta, you know, in Silicon Valley, it always used to be this, this is a beta product for, for years and years. But, uh, you know, in, in some cases, they, they're they doing their best to disclaim how good they're going to be. But at the same time, they're also positioning these as the future of the company, the future of the Business in the case of Google and uh, something they, they think is is really fit for people to be using and paying money for now, and so they're in a bit of a bit of a difficult spot with that.
1: Yeah, they almost went off too early. I mean, a lot of people felt that the whole thing, people were keen to get ahead of each other, and maybe went off at the point where it still really wasn't functioning. Maybe the the technology itself can't make it uh, behave in the way it's supposed to. I suppose effectively mimic the way humans would do it because it's just not there yet.
4: Yeah, it, it certainly isn't 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 operating in the way one might expect, for example, if you ask it to generate one of these systems to generate an image and you suggest some corrections or changes, it often generates an entirely new one that doesn't have some of the things in the prior image. So, so I think consumers are getting, you know, are experimenting with these tools, playing around with them. Um, There's also a degree of, of people trying to catch, catch them out and have it produce something, something strange, which again, is, is, is going to help these tools get better in the, in the long run, but in the short run, going to be quite painful because as you say i think some of these companies are really rushing to compete and get these get these products out in the marketplace
1: now you've worked inside the big companies like that the, the produce these kind of things how important is it to them to get this right do they really care that much because in the end people will just be too excited to use it uh, and, and for commercial purposes but also amusement i mean the, the, where it comes in terms of well, let's call it politically correct doesn't really matter perhaps to them
4: I, I think they, they have a number of concerns. I mean a company like a Google or a Meta, you know, they're they're in the crosses of regulators and legislators all over the world for a variety of reasons. And so I think in some cases startups like an open AI or someone else might be able to move more quickly and have some of their mistakes be, you know, discounted more uh than, than someone like a Google making a mistake. That said, I know there's you know lots of smart and thoughtful people at these companies uh thinking really hard about how to make these products good, not just in terms of functionality but also make sure that they're um, you know helping advance the conversation around a lot of important topics not just the efficacy of you know generating a stock image of someone so i think it i think there'll be a lot more to say on these uh, topics but um, you know a lot of work is going into into building these and i think it is very crucial for the business prospects of these uh, larger companies getting ai rights just as as we've heard on the chip yeah. side or on the software side, is super important.
1: Thanks for that, Rob. Rob Leather and there. I should just say that Jack Krawczyk, a senior director on Google's Gemini team, tweeted, we're aware that Gemini is offering inaccuracies in some historical image generation depictions, and we're working to fix this immediately. Now, the US has $1.77 trillion in student debt, and the average federal student loan debt per person is over $37,000. And a lot of it might be for nothing. Well, that's one take, at least on a new report that's come out. The labour analytics firm Burning Glass Institute and the non-profit Strada Education Foundation say roughly half of college graduates end up in jobs where their degrees aren't needed. They track the career paths of more than 10 million people who enter the job market over the past decade. Well, I spoke to Stephen Murray. He's the president and CEO of Strada Education Foundation.
5: I think you know people pursue a college education in the U.S. for a variety of reasons, but certainly for the strong majority of them, the top reason or one of the top reasons is to secure a better job. You know, access to opportunities uh, economically that they wouldn't be able to pursue otherwise. So I think in that sense, the report certainly indicates that uh, you know concerning outcome that you know roughly half of new graduates with a bachelor's degree are underemployed a like year out of undergrad
1: what sort of jobs are they going into Then they don't need for this? Is it? Are they more manual jobs? What is it?
5: You know, it's, it's really a wide variety. What we found when we looked at underemployment of college graduates in the US is that the vast majority of the 50% or so of recent grads who are underemployed are what we would call severely underemployed. And, and those are folks that are working in occupations that the US Bureau of Labor Statistics would consider to require no more than a high school diploma. So certainly that would include folks working as waiters, as construction workers, uh, as administrative assistants, as drivers and so forth. So the wide variety of of occupations. What the report found is that while some of them uh, are able to make a transition into some kind of professional or college level job uh, after some period of time, the strong majority of those who initially start out underemployed are still underemployed 10 years later.
1: That's extraordinary, isn't it? because you, you kind of think, well, these people graduates, yes, yeah, sure they, they they flip burgers to start with while they get where they need to be, but you're saying that doesn't really happen.
5: Well, it happens some of the time you know we have a we have a common saying in higher education in the u s that you know college isn't so much about preparing you for your first job but your fifth job, and while there's some truth in that, I think what was powerful what is powerful about this research is it really shows that for the vast majority of people, their first job plays a pivotal role in really setting the whole trajectory. Of their career, and that is to say, if if a person starts off in some kind of college level occupation, they will most of the time, the vast majority of time, remain uh, in college level jobs for the rest of their career. Conversely, if they start off underemployed, while some of them uh, certainly will be able to get college level jobs later, the strong majority are still underemployed a decade later.
1: And I suppose the question is then, is it that they're, they're taking the wrong degrees, the wrong qualifications, or mm-hmm. is it that they're people who perhaps made a mistake by going to college at all?
5: What our research really looked at was what are those factors that tend to be associated with uh, underemployment? Certainly the the strongest predictor is one's uh, field of study, their college major, if you will. In general, folks that study uh, more quantitative intensive fields, like some of the quantitative intensive uh, STEM fields like engineering or computer science or quantitative-intensive mathematics, quantitative-intensive fields in, uh, in business like finance or accounting, those folks tend to do uh, relatively well. Uh, we also see folks do well that uh, study uh, education to go on to be teachers or nursing to you know to go on to work in the health healthcare industry. Another new finding, this is a brand new finding in the research, showed that the whether or not someone takes an internship uh, is highly predictive on uh, whether they'll get a college-level job. But for those folks that, no matter what they study, controlling for everything else, Those that have an internship, uh, and at least one internship in college, are at least 50% or almost 50% less likely uh, to be underemployed. Um, We also showed for the first time how underemployment varies by geography. So there's quite a range across the states, while they're mostly in a relatively similar range, there's a significant range there as well. We also see underemployment uh, varying significantly by the type of institution uh, that someone attends also.
1: Stephen Moray there, the Strada Education Foundation. Now, in just over half an hour, or perhaps a little bit more, the US should land on the moon for the first time in 50 years. Five, four, three, two. Vehicle pitching gun range. Well, that was the launch just over a week ago of the spacecraft Odysseus, built and controlled by the Houston-based Intuitive Machines. It's a private company. It has a NASA payload, and it's planned to touch down near the moon's south pole. It's the first ever moon landing by a private company. And that is something of a milestone and an indicator about the future of space development. Joining me, I'm pleased to say, is Dr Jenny Millard, the astronomer and presenter of the Awesome Astronomy Podcast. Uh, Dr Millard, thanks for being with us. I mean, uh, just briefly, is it going to land on time? We think it's going to land in just under an hour, I think.
0: Yeah, so we're looking at about half an hour now until the landing. Hopefully, they haven't changed the countdown clock. I've been monitoring it ever since they started live streaming. And they seem to be on plan. We're expecting a burn to happen in a few minutes' time, and then that'll start taking it down to the lunar surface. It's about 50 kilometres of surface of the Moon now, so, yeah, we're getting down to those final moments.
1: Good. And, and we should emphasize, it's an unmanned uh, craft, isn't it? And it's there delivering a NASA payload, so it's not it's not man back on the Moon.
0: No, it isn't, yeah. There's no crew on board this. It's about the size of the TARDIS, funnily enough, this craft. I should and, add, uh, add, for
1: those of us who, who are listening outside, The gun, uh, TARDIS is, you know... You know Doctor Who is pretty widespread, but it's the size of a, a large box, I suppose one should say.
0: Yeah, like a big telephone box, that, that kind of size. And it has got about 12 payloads on board, half of those being from NASA, half of those then from private companies. And for some of them are technology demonstrations which are being used to help land the craft, and then others are scientific investigations to help us prepare to return people to the moon with Project Artemis.
1: But it is interesting. It is a first, obviously the first of 50 years for the US going back, but the first time a private company, we, fingers crossed, will have put a a, a craft on the moon. Now, that is, I guess, pretty significant. We've talked a lot on this program about the commercialization of space, of private companies getting involved. But this is a real uh, line in the sand, isn't it?
0: It is. It's a huge milestone. If intuitive machines can pull this off, it really is the start of the commercial lunar payload services program from NASA where they're kind of shifting responsibility for these smaller missions over to private companies instead of them doing it themselves because this frees up time and funds for them to focus on the bigger missions like putting the people back on the moon. But of course, all of these small experiments are essential to allow that to happen. They're just getting sort of someone else to do it for them instead of them having to do everything.
1: Now, you mentioned that part of the payload is NASA, part of the payload is, is is from the private sector. I suppose we could get to a point before too long when it's an entirely private sector thing. They don't involve NASA at all. They simply send something else and, and put it on the moon. Is that going to come soon?
0: Indeed. Well, intuitive machines have taken responsibility for this whole mission, really. They've organized the flight. They've built the lander. All NASA has done is bought payload space. So while NASA have made the experiments that they've put on board themselves, just like all the other companies, they've paid for space on board. They haven't been able to dictate the size of the craft or you know, particularly where it's going to land. It's all a negotiation between all of the companies. So this is very much a commercial mission, just with NASA kind of tagging along, really.
1: And commercial means, in a way, it's going to make some money. I mean, how does it make money for, for this company? Where, do they, where does their income come from?
0: Well, the income comes from uh, companies paying for space on board this this craft. So, you know, NASA have paid to have their payloads on board. and Private people have paid to put art installations on, for example. A university has paid to put a camera on board there. And so that's how this mission is funded.
1: But in going further forward, I suppose the reason commercial companies are interested in the moon is that they can, well, I don't know, mine things on the moon, put things on the moon that they can use to make money. I mean, how, how does it all go forward?
0: So they'll take the science and the technologies that are trialed here. They can then be used in other missions. You can imagine these companies can sort of sell this technology on so other companies make profits that way. Indeed, resource mining, you know, if they can prove a technology to get, for example, water out of the south pole of the moon, which is something that we want to do, that'll be really interesting for NASA, for example. They really want to be able to do that. So that's how the other companies can then sort of generate money and we get this kind of profitable rolling system.
1: And briefly, I suppose also they could build their own moon base, couldn't they? It could be a, you know, a whole, a whole commercial-owned base on the moon.
0: Hey, there could be. I mean, we're going to see some commercial space stations by the end of this decade, the start of the next. So who's to say that there couldn't be a private lunar base as well?
1: That's that just really is remarkable, isn't it? Thank you so much for being with us. I'll let you get back to watching on your um, on your your view, viewer to see all the progress of this. Fingers crossed, it will actually happen. But Dr. Jenny Millard, thank you so much for being with us here on World Business Report as we contemplate a rather important milestone in space exploration. But that's it from us on the program. Thanks for listening.
0: For just as long as Hollywood has been Tinseltown, there have been suspicions about what lurks behind the glitz and glamour. And for a while, those suspicions grew into something much bigger and much darker.
2: Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist
0: Party? I'm Una Chaplin, and from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service, this is Hollywood Exiles. It's about a battle for the political soul of America and the battlefield was Hollywood. Search for Hollywood Exiles wherever you get your podcasts.